Well, hey, good morning, everybody. So good to see all of you. Um, this is your first time here at Hill City. My name is John Wagler. I'm part of this team here and just grateful uh, that you are here and you're spending a part of your Sunday here with us. And um, we've been praying this morning for you guys and, and just to encounter Jesus in just a special way today. And um, whether that's for the first time or if that's for the millionth time, um, we just want you to encounter Jesus. And so I um, just love that you're here. Uh, we're in this series that's been building up to Easter, which is coming in just a couple of weeks here. And so, um, and let me just say this about Easter services. Like, invite people to come. Um, we're going to have a space problem. It's okay. Like, um, if you're like, uh, if Hill City is your home, we'll just make people sit on your lap. Like, you're used to it. So, uh, but just invite people to come. It's going to be an incredible Sunday. And, um, and you know, that, that invitation that you give to someone might be the very thing that sets their life on a whole new direction. And uh, by the way, they encountered Jesus on that Sunday. And so it's going to be a fun Sunday and a big celebration and all of that. Um, but, you know, we are celebrating the reality of a resurrected king in Jesus. And so um, invite people. It's going to be awesome. And uh, so we've been doing this series trying to prep our hearts into this. And uh, it's called In Three Days. And in the, the premise behind this series is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, which he's talking to these Pharisees. And, and he's explaining to them what's, uh, like who he is. And these Pharisees are, are really bothered by the things Jesus teaches and what his followers are doing and everything. And Jesus approaches them and starts sharing with them, like, hey, like, you know the story of Jonah? Like, in the same way, like, I'm going to be in, in the earth for three days and three nights, and, and you know the story of Jonah, and I'm telling you, someone greater than Jonah is here, and he's talking about himself, and so we've been looking at the story of Jonah, because it's like, why, why did Jesus talk about Jonah in that, in, in describing his own death and eventual uh, resurrection, and so we've taken a little deeper dive into this story, and uh, just as a recap here of what's, what's, what's transpired over these first two weeks, uh, once you remember that this story of Jonah um, in the genre that it's written in is, is actually like satire and in, in, in a parable-like form, and uh, it was to be performed, and so to to hear this story back then, you know, a long, long time ago, a couple thousand years ago, would have been people to see this story performed in them. And they would have seen this very frequently, gotten very familiar with this story. But, but Jonah uh, was a prophet of God. And uh, for those of you that have been here uh, for these first two weeks, uh, Jonah was what? Come on. Yes, thank you. Don't embarrass me like that if there's new people here. Um, like the, Jonah was what? Running, yes, Jonah was running. He was the Forrest Gump of prophets. And so Jonah uh, is running away from, from God and what God had called him to do. And Jonah sets out and, and you know, God calls him to go preach to these Ninevites, um, which was this wicked city. And, and Jonah says, no, I'm, I'm going to run. I'm, and I'm going to run as far away as I can. I'm going to go to Tarshish, which was this land of, of luxury and extravagance. And they were going to get this ship that had all this expensive cargo on it. And he was going to go. He was going to go as far to the end of the earth earth as he possibly could go, which was 2,500 miles away from Joppa, where he was. And, and he decides to try and run. And, and, and what we saw in that first week, it's like, oh, Jonah is a runner, but Jesus stays and stands and is courageous and doesn't run from what might be difficult. And we see that, oh, so Jesus is a, a greater Jonah in this. And then we also see that, that Jonah's actions bring on the storm brings on this storm in his life. He brings on this storm in other people's life. And, and Jonah causes a storm, uh, but Jesus calms a storm. Why? Because Jesus is a greater Jonah. And then after that, um, Jonah gets swallowed by this great fish, right? 
And, uh, and, and then in this, we see like some of Jonah's prayers. And we see that in his prayers that, that Jonah, he was disobedient and he was running. And then uh, even in his prayers, there's a little disobedience in his prayers. There was, they weren't that faithful. They weren't that strong of prayers. And, uh, and, and we see that, oh, he was still pretty selfish in his prayers. And, and in that, we start seeing like, oh, Jonah is still like far away from who God designed him to be. And, uh, and he's trying to escape. And while Jonah tries to escape, Jesus is always present. And so we see that Jesus has this greater uh, Jonah. And then we also see last week that we talked about imagination, to, to never lose our imagination. See, Jonah had lost his. When you lose your imagination, you lose hope. Um, but man, when, when you can keep your imagination intact, like anything is possible. Can you imagine being one of Jesus' disciples and walking with him? They must have walked around you know, seeing him do miracles and hearing these teachings and everything, they must have just thought, man, anything is possible. Like they see someone that, that might be in need of healing. They're like, I mean, Jesus could do it. I mean, Jesus could do it. Um, they see someone like who's really bad off for one reason or another. It's like oh, anything is possible. They had, they, they just had this framework of like anything is possible. The early church, anything is possible. And it begs the question for us as Christians, is that the way we live? Did you go, did you wake up like, you, you know, you, you, last Sunday, you were good, right? You walked out here. I'm going to keep my imagination, right? Monday, did you wake up and think to yourself, anything is possible, right? We lose that just like that, don't we? Isn't that amazing? But man, what if we got fixated on that? That, that anything is possible. Why? Because my imagination is where God wants it to be with such wonder and awe that anything is possible. And it changes everything. And then we see in the story that uh, at the end, and we'll pick this up um, right where we left off, but, but Jonah um, gets vomited um, back onto dry land. And we talked about how um, God has a gag reflex, um, which is um, superficial spirituality, okay? And so, uh, so we talked about, so that's your recap if you're just hopping in uh, today. And so we're going to pick up the story of Jonah uh, in, uh, right at the end there where he gets vomited up in, in verse uh, 10 of chapter 2, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. All right, so it's just an interesting part of the story. This is, um, as I said before, it's like satire, this story. And so it's supposed to be funny. So, so even, and again, it's, it's humor that we don't get. I think we're funnier now than they were back then. But it's, it's, it's humor that we don't necessarily get. But so even this idea that God spoke to the fish. The way it's written is that he had a conversation with the whale or the big fish, whatever it was, right? That it's this idea. It's like, I want you, fish, to vomit up Jonah back up into this dry land. And that the fish is apparently responding. Like, they're having this conversation. It's like, oh, okay. And so, like, this, or ever orca would, sure, God. And, um, and so he vomits, he vomits Jonah back up onto uh, this land. And, and why, you know, there's a humor element to this as the writer is doing this. But the reality is, what the writer is also trying to get us to understand is that God could do that because, what well, God's Lord of all of it. It's those little subtle things. This is the brilliance. I mean, the brilliance of the writer of this story. It's like, he's like, oh, I just want to see his little piece. God could. He could literally speak to the fish if he wants to. And make the fish speak back. You know why he could? Because he created it. And he's Lord over all of it. And so, he, so Jonah gets vomited up onto uh, dry land. And then the story continues 
in chapter 3, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it the message that I give you. Now, if you guys remember in the first week, we talked about how God told Jonah to get up, to arise, and go. And Jonah did what? He kept going what? Down. And so the, the writer's intentionally getting this, this theme going in your brain to see like up and down, up and down, up and down. That, that with God, it's like everything comes up and it's arising and it's following and it's going. But when we kind of go against God, we go down. And so, um, so God comes back to Jonah a second time. How cool is God for this, right? A second time he comes and he's like, all right, here we go again, right? I want you to, to get up and, and go. And on the front end, it sure seems like he is obeying. It's like, oh, he finally got up and went, right? And, and so, um, I said his get up and go, must have got up and went. And so he, he got up and he, and he, and he goes and, and he and he finally obeys. Maybe. We'll see in a second. But he goes to where? Where does, where does uh, Jonah supposed to go again? Nineveh. Here's what's interesting about this part of the story that I haven't, I've been waiting to share until this point. Because I just think this is just cool how the, the authors of the Bible write. He gets sent to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is not a Hebrew word, all right? So this is all written in Hebrew, but Nineveh is not a Hebrew word. It's actually an Arcadian word um, from the Assyrian dialect, okay? And so Nineveh comes from uh, the goddess uh, Nina, who was a river goddess, whose symbol was a fish, okay? So get this. Jonah on the front end is sent to fish city. That's what Nineveh is. He says no. God sends a what? fish. This fish swallows Jonah. Where does he vomit him up to unto? Fish city. So God's like, you're going to do it no matter if you like it or not. And we see that God's like, you're going to go to fish city. And Jonah's like, I don't want to go to fish city. He's like, I'm going to send you to fish, just ironically, to swallow you, to then vomit you up onto fish city. Because why? I'm putting you there because I told you to go to fish city. I don't want to go to fish city. He goes, you're going to end up at fish city. You're going to go, right? Because whatever my plans are for your life, they're going to happen. Whatever my plans are um, for the, the Ninevites, they're going to happen. Do you want to be in it or not? You have a choice. It's, and we've all had this, like, remember when your parents, like you, maybe your parent now, or maybe you remember this when you were a kid, and you didn't want to go somewhere, and your parents said, oh, you're going to go. <laughs> right? They might have said, you're going to go. Right, like, that might, like that's how I might have done it. That's what God's doing. Like, you're going to go. I don't want to go to Fish City. You're going to Fish City. I don't want, you're going to Fish City. I'm going to run away. I don't care. I'm going to swallow you whole and vomit you up just to prove a point. But you're going to Fish City. And how often does God want to do that for us? We've probably lived that. God's like, I want you to go to this place. I don't want to go. He's like, God, I'm going I'm to get you there one way or another. And you have a choice how you want to get there. Do you, do you want to get there clean or do you want to get there with vomit on you? <laughs> right? And so God's like, all right, you're going to Fish City. And now, and he tells him, he's like, I want you to go proclaim the message that I told you. Now, here's what I love. We just see it right in the front. And it says, for the second time, God has done this. And this is, I mean, telling just a wonderful story about God's grace and mercy. But it's like, God is a God of second chances and many more. 
How many of you guys know that as part of your own story? He's a God of second chances and many more. And so he gives him a second time. He's like, hey, I want you to go proclaim the message, right? They proclaim this message to the Ninevites. Now, it's interesting. It's interesting. Jonah should have known the message. So I want to go back to the first chapter because I want you to see what the message was. This is the first time that, that God said this to, to Jonah. He said, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, right? Which means call it out for what's, what it's doing. Because its wickedness has come up before me. Like, they need to be aware of their actions and what's happened to me, to God. Like, they're, they're a front to God. Like, go and proclaim this message, all right? So that's what's supposed to happen. Watch this. Jonah obeyed the word, maybe, of the Lord God and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took how many? To go through it. Jonah began by going what? How many days did it take to go through it? And how many, how many did Jonah do? Huh. Anyone have that obedience problem? God tells you to go a certain length, right? And you're like, kind of. So we start seeing a lot of ourselves in Jonah. And so Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Is that what God told him to say? So look at this, y'all. So Jonah, it seems like he's obeying, but he's really, again, this is like where we resonate with the story. God has like said, hey, I want, hey, Mike, hey, Michelle, hey, Wendy, hey, whatever your name is. Like, I, I, I want you to go do this. And this is what I've told you to do and how, like, you've got the word of God and you can hear it and you can read it and you can experience it and you can communicate together. It's like, I've told you to go do this and you can hear it and you know it. And then you decide, like, I'm just going to kind of do it. And it might be like, it's like, it's like, I told you, like, that's not the right person for you. And, and you're like, yeah, but she like has heard of you before, God. That'll be enough, Right. Or I told you, like, that's not where you should, like, why are you doing that with that job? Why are you, why are you devoting all your time? You know better than that. It's like, yeah, but I'm like, I'm at least ethical when I'm doing it. It's like, that's not what I called you to be. Stop shortchanging my word. And so Jonah suffers from this. Jonah doesn't fully experience the reality of God. Jonah doesn't, um, because of his actual disobedience, or I should say partial obedience, because of that, he doesn't experience the fullness of life with God. He experiences a piece of it and a piece of the reality and understands who God is, but he doesn't experience the fullness of of who he is because of only his partial obedience. And so Jonah proclaims something to the city, though, right? Like, again, this is the partial obedience. He gives a time. Um, he gives a result. He doesn't even mention God. Doesn't say what God had already told him to say. So he, he, there's, like, partial obedience in here. And the author of the story wants us to kind of feel that and feel the weight of that and be like, oh, how often are you, Jonah. He wants you to pause and reflect on that for a second. Like, man, where in my life am I just partially obeying? Because if it's true that when I partially obey, I only partially experience the reality of who God is, isn't that problematic? Doesn't it cause more problems? Doesn't it like affect the people around me? Doesn't it impact all my relationships? 
How many of you guys in here would love to experience the fullness of God? Right? So if you raised your hand for that, then what is required of us is to fully be willing to surrender to the realities of who God is. That's how we experience his fullness. Will we do that perfectly? No. But man, in our heart, it's like what we want to orient our entire life for. And so story continues in verse 5. It says, the Ninevites believed God. This is crazy. In spite of Jonah, they believed God. Look at this. They believed, and then they did something else. They did a fast. So there's something that's tie-in to There's this belief and this action that's happening. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from the throne. He took off his royal robes and covered himself in sackcloth and sat down. I just want you to see this. And so when we see that the reality, we talked a little bit about this last week, that when, when belief in God is real, there's an action that follows. And so here it's like, oh, they believed, and, and then they, they, they fasted, they, re, they responded. That there was an action associated with that belief. And so they, they fast, they give up food, they give up all these things. It's like the reality, they hear this message of God in spite of Jonah's you know, disobedience. They, they hear this message of God. And isn't it crazy that God works that way? I mean, what incredible grace and mercy. In spite of those who say they follow him being disobedient, his message still gets out there. I mean, you think about maybe how many times in your own life where you know, someone like received a message from God through your life, even though you were incredibly broken and so far off. It's the unbelievable grace and mercy of God. And so we begin to, to see like, okay, all right, so, so God's going to do his thing. And it's like, all right, so here we see, all right, there's a belief and then there's an action. And, and the writer of this story is trying to clue us back in. It's like, where's the king? This pagan king, this wicked king um, rises up. So he, he rises up from his throne, steps down from his throne, takes off everything, and sits down in the dust, meaning like an utter surrender. And it's the same thing as before in the story when what did the sailors do? They got up, they realized who God was, they threw off the cargo of the ship, all of the extravagance, all the money, all the wealth, all the things that were weighing it down so they could be saved. And so what the author's trying to do, he's like, what are the things in your life, those robes in your life, the extravagance in your life, the things in your life that actually are weighing you down, that think that just make you look good, but it's actually weighing you down from fully experiencing the reality of who God is? What is it, maybe, of your own materialism that you're not willing to surrender or lay down? Is there something there? And so the king is able to do this, and he then makes this command. He says, this is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. He says, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth, which is like this goat hair. So even the goats were wearing goat hair, right? Um, so which is like a, they must, they, I'm sure they were not cool with that. But like the, but this part of like the, the humor of the story, it's like, man, the, the the reaction to who God is is so extreme. And this is what they're trying to get us to see. That when we experience the reality and the truth of who God is, when we respond correctly, it's not going to make sense to people. People are going to be like, why would you do that? Why did you give that up? 
Why are we willing to sacrifice that? Why do you do that with your time? How come you live that way? It's like, it doesn't make sense to people. Why? But man, the reality of who God is really makes sense when it gets our heart and grips our hearts like it should. On the front end, some people are going to be like, nah, I don't get it. But man, but to you, it's like, no, this makes all the sense in the world because why would I live any other way? What, what could possibly drive my passion more than the reality and the truth of who Jesus is in my life? So what happens here is he says, let everyone urgently, call urgently on God. Let him give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And so I want to talk about something with this little word called repentance. And a little bit of understanding of repentance. Because this is a key kind of component to the story that we see. These, these wicked people, they, they repent. Um, they, they're like, man, maybe, just maybe, now that we see who the reality of who God is and we surrender our lives here and we understand our front against a perfect holy God, like, maybe if we just approach him with humility and approach him the way that we should, maybe God would relent and shift how he was going to respond uh, to us. And so I want to give us a couple of signs of repentance and some things to think about. Repentance, it's, it's knowing what you're turning from. So you, you want to know what you're turning away from, right? And so, so it's like, all right, so this idea of repentance isn't, like the confession is simply um, speaking into existence what's a reality. Uh, but repentance is actually taking that confession of what's going on inside of you, turning from it, and going the other direction. And so when the reality of repentance is true and real in us, we, we are actually naming what we're turning from. Right? We're naming what we're turning from. Uh, and, and on the front end, what we see in this story, and this is actually part of your story as well and my story, is that we're turning from God's wrath. That's part of it. We'll have another part of it in a second, but turning from God's wrath. Um, how many of you guys love God's wrath? Yeah, like no one wakes up, you know, and like talks about, man, I, you know what I prayed for today? That God's wrath would come upon me, right? Like we don't, we don't, we don't process it that way. We don't think about it that way. Um, but the reality is, is, is we all actually love God's wrath. I mean, I think about it that way. But we do actually inherently um, love God's wrath because um, how many of you guys want justice in this world? If you want justice, then you appreciate God's wrath. If you want evil to be taken care of, then you appreciate God's wrath. If you want hope at the end of all of this, then you appreciate God's wrath. If you want some of the suffering and pain and, 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 and things that like, you know, can ravage a, a grouping of people, if you want that to be taken care of, then actually you do appreciate God's wrath. I mean, I never thought it that way, but... You actually do, and you, you long for it. You technically long to see God's wrath. And if, if God isn't a God of justice, then there's no hope for our world or no, no hope for our future. If you think about it this way, too, um, do you want God to just continuing to let evil people do evil things? No, right? So then 
you want God's justice and you want God's wrath against something. So, so we do appreciate and we do understand and we do desire um, God's wrath. The only reason we don't like God's wrath is because we don't like when it comes against us. We don't like when his, when his justice and his light shines on us. And, and it's important to process um, the reality of, of justice and the reality of Israel when it shines on us. Um, you know, we, we've said this several times where, uh, you know, I said about prayer. I was like, man, if God answered every single one of your prayers, um, how many people's lives would actually change other than your own, right? But in the same way, because it's trying to just think, get us to think a little bit bigger about the realities of who we are. If everyone thought like you, just thought, not even acted, just thought like you, would this world be a wonderful place? Wow. If everyone acted exactly like you, would this world be perfect? And so we see the imperfection, the reality of sin. We see the reality of what can actually transpire. And we, we know that, oh, when God's light turns on me, what do I need? Oh, I need a Savior. I need grace. And I need mercy. And it changes everything. And it, it makes us realize the reality of who God's supposed to be in all of this story and in my own personal story. And so that we see that God is a God of justice, that God is a God speaking against the wickedness of um, these Assyrian people, the Ninevites. You see, these, these people were people of great evil. They were imperialistic. They were violent. They were immoral. They had military strength, sexual exploits, oppression of the poor, um, tons of classism stuff going on. And God was opposed to it, all of it. God was... Um, uh, very anti, like, the way that they live their lives and how they, they hurt people around them. And so we begin to see that the reality of God's justice is this, that um, God's justice is spiritual and it's social. So when we talk about social issues, it's like, oh, this is a part of God's justice. You can't, like, get away from it. it it's a part of it. And, and that the reality of who God is and his justice, it is spiritual and it's social. It is, man, it does something inside of us and it impacts our hearts and everything, but it's also doing something outside of us. It's in both places. So you can't talk about the reality of God's justice and the gospel without talking about the reality of our hearts inside and also our actions outside. You, you have to talk about both. And the reason that you have to talk about both is because it's exactly what Jesus did. If you read through the teachings of Jesus, you cannot get away from the social implications of what he's teaching about the realities of the kingdom of God. Yes, he also talks about what's going on inside of us. Absolutely. So it's, it's like it impacts, his justice impacts the reality of what's going on inside, but then impacts the reality of what's happening outside. Um, I saw this quote from Martin Luther King this week that... Um, plays into this. It says, one has not a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code um, that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. And what is he saying here? That the reality of the, when the tr truth of Jesus comes into play, and the justice of Jesus and the message of Jesus comes into play. 
It's like those that say they follow him are not just concerned what's happening on the inside, which is important, and that conversation needs to be there because that's the root of everything, but also very aware and wants to speak into what's happening outside in action. And if something is against the reality and moral and justice-oriented element of who God is, then those that say they follow him should be aggressively participating in the conversation. And so it changes everything. It changes how we see all of this. And so, so we understand God's justice a little bit deeper. Now, let me say this too about when we see re- repentance. When we repent, we want to um, repent and understand that not only are we turning away from God's wrath, but we're also turning away from something or someone. And you need to name what that is or who that is. And so we're, so in that process of repentance, that what, that's what we're doing. And listen, repentance is um, individual and it's communal. It's individual and it's communal. Uh, a lot of times when we talk about the reality of repenting and, and turning away and, and turning towards God and, and coming back to God, and we, all, we, we typically only think of it individually. But scripturally, um, quite often it happens communally. And, and quite often it's because they are repenting for things of generations before them that sometimes they didn't even participate in. They were a product of, but didn't necessarily participate in. And so um, there's this verse in Second Chronicles that you guys have probably seen a Christian post before, typically during political season. But it says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and here it is, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, and then I will forgive their sin, and then I will heal their land. Who are the people? My. And what the challenge is here is like, oh, like, hold on a second. I have to be very aware in my repenting that I'm also like deeply connected to the reality of my city and what's happening culturally around me. Why? Because what's happened inside of me is also connected to what's going on outside. And so I'm very aware. Can you imagine this? Uh, this has never happened. And so I, but can you imagine if every follower of Jesus in Richmond, every follower of Jesus, that we all gathered with this deep devotion and commitment and with utter humility um, repented for what happened to um, Native Americans on this land first and then repented for all the, all the issues of race in our city. And I'm talking every Christian of every race, like just everyone got together like we are repenting of the realities of what happened on this land. It's never happened. I've often wondered, with humility, if it did, if we would see God move in a way that we've never seen before. We like the individual one, but man, we don't like the communal one. You might be, maybe inside of you right now, you're thinking, but I wasn't a part of that. I wasn't around a few hundred years ago. I wasn't, I didn't do anything in the 50s. I wasn't even, some of you guys, I wasn't even close to being alive. And it's like, but hold on a second. Maybe, 
with humility that maybe the way this can work is like God sees the cries of his people for maybe the unjust things that happened before them. And maybe God responds to a community of people in a different way for things that those before us actually did. Maybe. I want to end with this. So we know from something, and then I want you to know what you're going towards. Laura, you can come up. The reality of repentance is know what you are turning from and know what you are turning towards. And here's what you're turning towards. You're turning towards grace, mercy, and life. Grace, mercy, and life. This is what you're moving towards. Um, the most perfect person in this room who has the most pure thought life, who has the most pure actions, follows Jesus better than anyone else in this room, whoever that is, still falls woefully short. And we need grace and we need mercy. This morning when the band was practicing this last song, um, I was standing in the back just listening and I, and I was thinking about um, the song is What Your Mercy Has Done For Me. And um, I, I was thinking about just this thing about life. I was like, man, I remember I really thought I was alive until I actually really encountered Jesus and then I discovered what real life was. And that is only through his grace and mercy. I did not deserve that. I did not deserve to experience it, nothing. But, man, when I realized what I was turning away from and then all of a sudden I got a glimpse of what I'm moving towards, this grace and mercy and like real life, changes everything. Changed my whole entire life. In the end of this chapter, it says this. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them destruction he had threatened. And there's a lot to that verse in and of itself. Man. I realized what I was turning from when I was turning towards. God gave me something in my life that I did not know when I was looking this way and I did not experience. When I turned away from all that stuff that was pulling me away from him, it changed everything. So I want you guys to pause here for a second. Just bow your heads. We're going to sing. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing one more song. I want to give you a minute. Or a moment to just have with God. Is there something you need to confess and then repent of? Literally name in your head what you, you need to turn from. That's something or someone.
name it and know it and recognize it. And let God speak into that so you can see what he has for you as you turn around back towards him.